they've been out there all night. They've been out there much of this morning, and in the last half hour, they've been pulled from the scene temporarily because they're worried that ground's going to start moving again. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The G8 drops Vladimir Putin from the group. Malaysia says the 777 went down in the Indian Ocean and Wall Street falls on a fairly major sell-off in biotech and other high flyers. Here's a little taste of what's to come. Well, we should be clear, there's not going to be a G8 summit this year in Russia. That's absolutely clear. We'll be meeting tonight the seven other countries of the G8 to determine the way forward. But frankly, it is Russia that needs to change course. And President Obama weighed in as well. Europe and America are united in our support of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. We're united in imposing a cost on Russia for its actions so far. And we'll also take a look at this slightly more deep-rooted issue about U.S. society. You know, I'm struck that it's not just income inequality that's increased over the last generation. If you look at the improvements in life expectancy, they've come almost entirely among those in the upper half of the income distribution. If you look at um, educational achievement, the gaps between the children of the affluent and the children of the less affluent are rising. If you look at college attendance, you see something uh, similar. So we're losing our status as a socially mobile opportunity uh, society. I'm sure most of you guessed who that was. Harvard professor and former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers weighing in on inequality in the United States. And, of course, we have that same problem here in Hong Kong. In our featured segments coming up this morning, we'll take a look at Tomasek's 5.7 billion U.S. dollar bid for a 25% stake in A.S. Watson. Is Mr. Li Ka-shing sending a message to China and C.Y. Lung about governance in Hong Kong? If so, what is that message? Is Mr. Lee recycling capital from east to west, given his big move in Europe? Or is he just doing what he's always done, trading assets, cashing out when he thinks that they're finally topping out? We'll talk to Una Galani from Reuters Breaking Views for that discussion. Also on deck is Professor George Stonehouse, Dean of the Business School, Edinburgh Napier University. Professor Stonehouse will share some thoughts with us on change management and corporate governance. And also Francis Lun from Geo Securities will be along for his take on markets. And speaking of markets, we have a little bit of a down start to the Asian trading day this morning. The Nikkei down 70 points at 14,404. In Australia, we're down about four tenths of a percent. And in Seoul, the cost be off a quarter of a percent. Big drop in gold overnight. Gold now $1,310.60. So we moved from almost 1400 down to 1310 here in the past uh, week or so after Janet Yellen said interest rates would be going up six months after the end of the taper. More on that in a minute. And looking at currencies, the dollar yen 102.22. The euro is worth 1.3836. U.S. dollars. So we'll get into some of our news flow and then we'll bring in our guests this morning. The G8 has dropped Russia from its upcoming meeting. Uh, a moment ago, you heard from the leaders. Well, we get an overview now from the BBC's Gavin Hewitt. 
In Crimea, every Ukrainian military base is now under Russian control. Many of the Ukrainian soldiers, without their uniforms, are being pulled out of the region. Token resistance has ended. In Moscow, in the parliament, the flags of Crimea and Sevastopol were added to the flags of Russia's regions. Images intended to demonstrate that from the Russian perspective, Crimea's future has been settled. In the Netherlands, President Obama arrived for a summit on nuclear security, but it was completely overshadowed by the crisis in Ukraine. The American president, who was shown a restored museum for Dutch masters, was determined to keep the pressure on Russia and to signal it could not expect a place at the world's top table for the time being. So that top table will be in Brussels now instead of Sochi in Russia. On Wall Street, stocks were down for a second day. Economic data seemed to show a slowdown in both American and Chinese manufacturing. And some banks said Russia's economy would soon enter a recession due to sanctions. The S&P 500 fell 0.5% to 1857. The Dow was down 26 points at 16,276. But it was the Nasdaq that fell the most. Off 50 points to 4,226. Biotechnology shares were down some 3%. But Hillary Kramer from ANG Capital is still upbeat. Earnings growth has returned. It has come back. There's concern about our upcoming quarterly earnings because of the weather. If you if you look at March, March has been a really decently good month. So we're going to see reports on earnings X weather, and we will see growth. So even though, as I mentioned, the market was flattish for the day, uh, there were some pretty sharp movements. The Nasdaq Biotechnology Index was down more than 10% now from its record last month. I mentioned that uh, biotech shares down 3%. Tesla and Facebook, other high flyers, down 4%. The market index of U.S. manufacturing decreased to 55.5 in March from 57.1 a month earlier. And, of course, we had yesterday here uh, the manufacturing report on China weakening for a fifth consecutive month. Let's go back to former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and more about his worries of inequality in the United States. We're losing our status as a socially mobile opportunity uh, society. We're seeing increasing cleavages uh, within our population. It's cleavages in where people live. It's cleavages in how people get around. It's cleavages uh, in the kind of medical care uh, they get. It's, it's overall just differences in the lives they lead. And I don't think that's healthy uh, for the unity and ultimate strength of our country. Larry Summers. Treasuries were little changed. The yield on the 10-year note was down one basis point to 2.73%. On interest rates, former Fed Governor Larry Meyer walks us through the end of tapering in October, as he sees it, and then what he says will be a rate increase in the second quarter of next year. And purchases in the fall. So that's six months after October or November. So that takes you into into uh, uh, into the second quarter. And if you take the dots, it says three moves. A hundred is hundred basis points is three moves. Okay, from twenty-five to fifty, fifty to seventy-five, seventy-five to a hundred. Previously, there were two moves. So that would be consistent, in my view, with the first move uh, in in June, rather than September the last time. 
So they both indicate a, a moving up. They both indicate the second quarter, either at the beginning or at the end of the second quarter. And that's a good range. He kind of bobs and weaves a little bit on that. And he mentions the dots. Those are, of course, the projections from all the Fed presidents uh, that they make on how they see the economy moving and where they see rates going over the next year. And both what Janet Yellen said in the meeting last week, plus the dots indicate to him and others that we'll probably see a rate increase sometime around May, June next year, and then probably a move up to 1% by the end of next year. So whereas we're 0 to 25 basis points now, we'll be at 100 basis points or 1% by the end of next year. Anyway, that's uh, the way that the former Fed Governor Larry Meyer sees it. Well, let's say good morning to Francis Lun, Chief Executive <coughs> Officer of Geo Securities. Yeah, good morning. Hi, Francis. Hi. Um, well, lots there talking yeah. about Wall Street, but two big updates here in Hong Kong, even with the weak manufacturing <coughs> yesterday. What happened? Well, uh, mainly because of China. Uh, uh, the uh, actually it happened last Friday, where the uh, CSLC declared that the uh, uh, the Asia companies can issue preference shares to raise capital. Uh, prior to that, uh, there was some a, a, an informal moratorium on on issue of new shares because uh, they depressed the market. So they now found found a way to uh, get around that. So, so to, basically, to explain that to people is it's a way for companies to collect money without it depressing the share yeah, price, the yeah, common that's shares, right. because these are preference shares. They're sort of mm-hmm. like halfway between shares yeah, and uh, and a bond. Yeah, that's right. And and that should, that gave a sick know to the people that the government is really uh, 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 they they are sincere in wanting to improve the uh, stock market which has been in the slum for the past five years and is uh, depressing uh, everything else and uh, depressing share prices and, and hinder the development of the capital market. And so they find that this is the way to go forward, allow the uh, the companies that need money to raise money from the market first without depressing the common shares. Can we consider that part of the arc of reform that they're trying to achieve? Yeah, part of it, I think. Uh, uh, if you really want, want to reform the stock market, you have to go by the approval process for listing without all those uh, rubbish companies. And uh, the problem with Asia market is that they are dominated by rubbish companies <laughs> and, and you have to kick them out before you see real improvement. So you like to call a spade a spade. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so let's ask you about interest rates. When interest rates go up next year, is that going to, uh, uh, is that going to hurt us badly? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think uh, for Hong Kong people, I think uh, 70% of our wealth is in property. And especially for people who get in at the top at $20,000 per square foot. Uh, any raise in interest rate will be catastrophic for them. And uh, it's, it's not like, just that. You know, it's, what's interesting about it is that even in an economy that's improving, people fear a rise in interest rates yeah. uh, just because, you know, it makes the cost of capital more expensive. But at least they have an improving economy. The worst of all scenarios could be happening for us, which is yeah, we definitely. get higher interest rates in an economy in China that's slowing down. Yeah, that's what you call stagflation. And that's the worst of uh, uh, both worlds. And uh, uh, you have property prices not rising and then you have 
of interest rate, the mortgage pay, payment increasing, and uh, some people will not be able to hang on to the property, and they will have to dump their, their properties and further depressing the uh, property market. We've talked a lot about property with you, and you've mm. been pretty gloomy. So yeah. let me take a slightly different angle. Without the weight of money that QE provides us, doesn't that mean that investors then will be much more selective and they will really bid up those companies that are growing? And so if we can find those companies, shouldn't we be able to benefit? Well, you you already witnessed a spectacular rise of uh, Tencent. From uh, something like one hundred dollars to six hundred dollars, so you well, well, better yet, from its listing in two thousand and four, three seventy, three dollars seventy cents, forty six. you got it. Uh, uh, so actually, money is going to where where where, where the hot stocks are. Look at Tesla; uh, it, it's gone out of the world. Yeah. Uh, so okay, that means that there are opportunities. However, recently we've seen the Macau gaming stocks, which mm-hmm. have been very hot. Yeah. The small and large, you mentioned ten cent internet stocks. Yeah. Some of them have slipped a little bit here of yeah, late. That, yeah. And even some of the pharma and biotech companies yeah. in yep. China have slowed down. They sort of gone flat a little bit. Yeah. Do you think that those sectors will continue to do well? Should we should yeah, we buy this I think pause? So, because uh, you uh, uh, the traditional economy of what you call the old economy is doing very poorly. Uh, for the banks, they are at all-time low valuations. The, the FHPE is something like four or five times that, and, and the price to book is uh, 0.77. But the problem is they have uh, a lot of bad debt on their, on their books. Uh, not the 0.97%, I think it's more like 5%. So the thing that people want to know, Francis, maybe you're in a good position to tell us, mm-hmm. is you you spoke of all those old rubbish companies. Yeah. So these companies in the new economy, like Tencent, like yeah. Kingsoft, like some of these mm-hmm. consumer companies, are they not rubbish? Are they well run? Well, I think number one, you have to look at them. Uh, at this, uh, they, they have zero debt. I, I, I think the good part about these... Uh, 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 internet or new economy companies, uh, not only Tencent or Kingsoft, but look at Facebook, Google, and Apple, all these. They have zero debt, so the downside risk is uh, not that great. It, it, they, they won't go under. They won't go bankrupt because they have no debt. And, and, the, and the important thing is they are limbo. They don't have a, a lot of fixed assets. They, uh, 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 they, they are as good as what they're what uh, what the brains of their senior executives okay briefly your single best investment idea of the moment uh right now it's kings of 3888 okay it's up around 32 it's done very well um I had some. I bought some at 23, <laughs> 23 to 32, so I'm, I'm pretty oh, congratulations. happy. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, okay. okay, Francis, stay with us. We want to move on into Unaglani now and talk a little bit about this um, big sale of a portion of A.S. Watson uh, to uh, Tomasek, the Singaporean sovereign wealth fund Tomasek, making a big splash here in Hong Kong. The group paying 5.7 billion U.S. dollars for a quarter percent stake in uh, a 25 percent stake in uh, A.S. Watson's, a special dividend of seven dollars to be paid to both Hutch and Hong Kong shareholders. So very interesting story. Una Galani from Reuters Breaking Views joins us. Good morning. 
Good morning. Well, Hutch first sold down quite a bit yesterday, a variety of reasons. Uh, the IPO delayed by this for a couple of years. Also, the valuation is apparently lower than what we had thought before. Um, what, what do you think um, is happening with this? Uh, why, why did they go from a full IPO to this quarter percent stake? Well, I think we should just step back for a minute here. I mean, there was a bit of a fall in the Hutchinson Wampoa shares yesterday. But if you look back over the past year, they've risen by about a third. And at the same time, the Hang Seng Index has fallen. So Li Keqing has already grabbed investors' attention to the retail business just by simply going for the process of an IPO. So he's already achieved everything he wanted to do through an IPO by selling a stake to Temasek. Temasek by selling a stake to Temasek, you remove all the execution risk of an IPO. The IPO markets in Hong Kong has been doing well by volume, but if you look at how all of these big companies, these big recent listings have been trading in the secondary market, it's pretty shocking. Was it interesting to you that not only Hutchison but Cheung Kong was paying out uh, such a hefty special dividend? I think that the special dividend is pretty good discipline. Um, what it does tell us, though, is that Li Keqing isn't sitting on any big investment ideas at the moment. It means that um, rather than use that money to invest in something, he's actually giving it back to shareholders. So sometimes that's a sign that no other better ideas. And as I understand it, he himself is pulling about a billion dollars U.S. cash out through that dividend. Yes, I mean, he's a large shareholder, so that's going so to does happen. It, does it mean that he's, I mean, is he, is he pulling out of Hong Kong? Now, that's the question everybody likes to yes. ask. Yes, that's the tabloid. <laughs> okay, Francis says yes. You know, what say you? I think that that is a good question. And, you know, on Friday, he also announced the sale of a stake in a container terminal at the same time from Hong Kong. But we should also remember that Hong Kong has also always been a small part of Hutchinson Wampoa. I think it accounted for only 16% of the total group revenues last year. And Lee has also sounded pretty downbeat on Hong Kong recently. So that speculation will continue. But if you look at what the Watsons business is, around half of the revenue of Watsons is coming from Europe. Temasek has bought into this company not to make an investment into Hong Kong specifically, but because it wants to reduce its, its own exposure to the financial sector and increase its exposure to the consumer retail sector. By buying into Watsons, you're buying... A, an operation across Europe and Asia. It's 11,000 shops, 25 countries, 11 brands. I mean, this gives them, this gives the Singaporean fund um, a, a brilliant diversified investment in one go. Plus, they're also getting two seats on the Watson's board. So they'll also get a say in how this company is run going forward. So it's a good play for Tomasic, uh, seems like, from, from your view. And we have seen a general recycling of cash from Li Ka-shing. Uh, from east to west, and if you you know if you think that Europe is at a bottom and is moving forward, maybe that's a pretty good play. Well, look, we know that Li Keqing wouldn't sell any of his assets on the cheap, so he's definitely got a good price for this. The fact that he is returning cash to shareholders, like I said, tells us that he doesn't obviously have any big investment ideas immediately up his sleeve, but he also did just reap a lot of cash from the IPO of Hong Kong Electric, and that's money sitting around in the pocket of power assets, and they're potentially going to make some big acquisitions coming up in, in Europe or potentially Australia in the coming year. Francis, do you see a possible merger between Cheung Kong Infrastructure and Power Assets, and might they be well, soon deploying cash? No, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, Cheung, uh, Infrastructure is mainly 
on the, uh, the uh, utilities like the grid, uh, the uh, uh, gas pipeline, and all those uh, uh, rubbish disposal things like that. And power access is uh, concentrated on the power generation. I think there is a separation there. But it is true that in the past, I think it's the past three years, Li Ka-sing has been pulling out, selling off his assets in Hong Kong. There's no doubt about that. So is that. he sending a message to China or to CY Leung or both? Well, and the people of Hong Kong. He's sick of the continuous continue squabbling in the political arena. Nobody seems to agree on anything. And, and if there's one person who objects to something and everything stops, and also uh, CY Leung hasn't really done a good job. So I think he's just fed up with Hong Kong. 23 minutes after 8 o'clock. This is Money for Nothing. Yeah, just a little pause that refreshes there. Many thanks to Una Galani uh, from Reuters Breaking Views and also Francis Lun. I wasn't 100% sure that um, they were done on the program, Professor, but they walked out anyway. So (laughs) now we know they're done. Um, Thank you very much. Professor George Stonehouse, uh, Dean of the Business School, Edinburgh Napier University, joins us on the program. Very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Clearly I said something to upset. Yes, you must have. Yeah, (laughs) behind the scenes, like, oh, that's rubbish. (laughs) No, I know you wouldn't. Um, But Uh, I had written a line here that I plucked out of somewhere. The key to success of any organization is how you as a leader empower it to be creative, Uh, a line from you. And so it's nice to have you on the program to talk a little bit about creative advantage, about strong leadership and about providing the right environment. Um, So we were just talking about KS Lee and all these changes. Uh, Do you see much of a change in leadership um, out here in the East? Um, yes, I do. I mean, it was interesting, the previous conversation where you were obviously focusing around the finance of business. And what struck me is is the sort of divorce that there is between that conversation and the conversation there is uh, about actually making the business work more efficiently, uh, because there was no reference to the people. And I was interested in the concept that uh, if an organization doesn't have a lot of debt, then it's absolutely rock safe, uh, rock secure. Mm-hmm. When in fact, if you look at organizations that appeared to be financially secure a few years ago, I think two prime examples are Nokia and uh, BlackBerry, um, that that sort of security doesn't last unless your organization is creative and changes and responds uh, to the environment. And uh, you can put all the money you like in, but that money can equally as quickly vanish uh, as if the organization isn't run well. And what we've seen over the last few years is organizations haven't been run terribly well. Um, not so badly in the East, actually. The East has survived reasonably well, but I guess its time will come unless it adapts and changes as the world changes. Why do you think that leaders sometimes miss um, key changes in their industry? Or is it because they're just so overwhelmed with the enormity of, um, of what they're doing? I think it can be. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes um, there, there is a focus too much on the money. Um, if you look at what Apple do, they're not quite as focused on the money. They're mm. focused on providing an excellent service and an excellent product. Uh, and that's probably the right way to do it. It's looking at keeping customers happy. Uh, and, and I think, did you not think the contrast was starker, that all we talked about before was money? 
Um, we didn't talk about the people who actually consume goods and services and yes, the people well, who provide them. Yes, well, it is it is a fact that we do talk about finance a lot. We do talk about business as well. Yeah, we sure, the, sure. No, the, sorry, the, I'm, be, I'm being very unfair. No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's just that the, the conversation today sort of went that direction. But <laughs> we do talk about um, startups a lot here in, yeah, on this program, yeah. and we talk about uh, how business is run. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting. You, you're kind of a specialist in change management. Yeah. How important is that, that people who are leading companies understand when it's necessary to uh, to make dramatic changes, very important. If you if you look at the the rate of change in the world, uh, you know knowledge is is increasing so rapidly these days, and also the the economy is so uh, unpredictable. It's turbulent. It's not just that we've got change; it's a turbulent sort of change. And what you need is organisations which are. Um, able to respond to that. So, so that actually has changed the nature of change management because change management was about a planned process. Now it's about, um, about changing the people in organizations and changing the culture so that they are able to react much more quickly uh, uh, and be much more smart uh, when they need to change. And the key to that is developing your people. What's been interesting in this recession has been that uh, normally companies cut back on their spending on learning and development as part of their cost-cutting exercises. In fact, during this recession, there's been very little decrease in spending. And over the last three years, we've had about a 30-odd percent increase in, in spending on L&D. And interestingly, that spend is, a, is among the most successful companies. They spend more than the less well-performing companies. Do you think we spend too much time now on close scrutiny by uh, investors and the market generally on companies, and we have this short-term focus, which is embodied in the uh, quarterly reporting. Sure. That's said to be a good thing, but is it perhaps a bad thing in the long run? I, I think it's probably a bad thing in the, in, the, in the long run. We need to have a longer-term view of life. Now, you can regulate and regulate and regulate, and somebody will find a way around the regulation. Uh, what you need is to be changing people's values and behaviors. And you do that through through um, educating them, through helping them to learn. Um, you know, if you look at the way society functions, yes, we don't break the law, but most of us don't break the law because we know right from wrong. So I think we have to get more of that in organizations. And, and of course, if you're short-sighted and you're focused purely on the bottom line at that point in time, you will lose sight of the, you know, the bigger goals that, that, that you should have as an organization. So how do you set up um, the environment in a company to foster creativity um, when you obviously want people to perform tasks in a certain area? How do you actually create that atmosphere? Sure. There, there, there is a tension between the two things. And, and if you look at most companies, their focus is on, uh, is on the day-to-day -day operations rather than on uh, the longer term and the future. So you've got to create the space in the organization for people to question what's going on. And I think one of the problems in, in Eastern culture in the past has been that uh, there is a tendency not to question what the boss is doing, although it's pretty evident that that wasn't happening in the West as well. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's creating that environment within which people feel that they should be questioning the existing way of doing things where, where when something is going wrong, they actually point it out instead of, uh, instead of backing away from it for, for fear of losing their job. So it's that cultural environment that is critical to uh, making organizations more creative. It's got 
a little to do with the technology, a lot to do with the leadership and the culture, and I've got to say very little to do with the structure of the organisations. I'm not, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but, but far less important. Um, and if you look at the focus of companies and their spending uh, on learning and development, in fact, they've recognised that because 35% of the expenditure on, um, on learning and development is on leadership development. I think people have also recognised that training is not the answer because training doesn't change the way that people think. They realise that learning and development, the words I've used several times, are the key to that. That is really getting people to think about what they do and why they do it and what the values are involved in, in doing that. All right. Well, very interesting uh, material. Thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Okay, thank you. Professor George Stonehouse, Dean of the Business School, Edinburgh, Napier University, here on Radio 3. So we wrap up the program with just a quick look at uh, markets this morning. Uh, looks like something of a down day today. The Nikkei off 115 points and the other markets slightly lower as well. In the weather for Hong Kong today, cloudy skies expected, but some sunshine too. And we're looking at a maximum temperature of 25 degrees with mist tonight, then humid and foggy in the next few days. The news is coming up next. Statistics are vital to society's development. Where do the data come from? From you. Census and Statistics Department officers may visit your workplace to collect data. They may also visit your home to gather information. By law, 